0: Turn with me now in the Gospel of Mark to the 14th chapter. We've covered up to verse 32 today, so we'll begin with that verse, Mark 14, 32, and we'll read through 52, Mark 14, um, 32 through 52. Beginning to read with verse 32, hear now the word of the Lord. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be gone. Going, see my betrayer is at hand. And uh, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came for the chief from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come And immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands upon him and uh, took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple. Teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scripture, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him, and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body. And the young man, the young men laid hold of him, and he left the men, he left the linen cloth, and fled from them, naked. May the Lord bless this reading. Uh, to our good understanding, hmm. is this passage of scripture uh, a description of defeat? It certainly has elements of defeat, but in terms in terms of the overall thrust of it, is it a description of defeat? That's the way many have treated it as they as they have preached through it in this season we've just passed through, uh, according to the church calendar. That men have invented. We've passed through the Easter season when these things come up uh, in the church's life, and they focused on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and uh, and uh, it's a uh, uh, it's themes of defeat and uh, crucifixion and these kinds of things. But I ask you the question: Is this a uh, is this a really a description of defeat? Is, the, is defeat the main theme or the underlying theme of this passage, or is defeat as simply a factor in the passage, uh, the destruction of our Lord Jesus Christ? And I would argue that even here where the Bible looks upon and studies the idea of defeat, the defeat of Christ, even here there is this idea <laughs> that our Lord's defeat was for a higher purpose for the salvation of the elect for the the saving of uh, his sheep he said I lay my my life down for the sheep my sheep hear my voice and they follow me the implicit idea here is that Christ would live again and that he would preach again and that his sheep would respond to his word and so we cannot we cannot see this um, this passage as um, as an end-all, it describes the context of how our Lord entered into redemption and saved us from our sin. But the, the suffering does not go on forever. And in fact, the resurrection very quickly followed this defeat. And it's out of the resurrection and the ascension that we get the uh, restoration of the church, the church age, and up to our present day, so um, uh, this this passage of scripture, in its in its story of defeat, it shows us really man's prospects pre-resurrection. What how would man behave? or What would man's uh, success be in the flesh without the power of Christ? And that comes through very very loudly here in this passage. Without Christ, without the resurrection, without the Holy Spirit, we are in a sad decline, brothers and sisters. We do not have much hope. In the same way that the disciples were such losers in the the garden there as Jesus beckons them to pray, so we are. We need his help, and this passage describes for us both our weakness and then the latent or the hidden strength that is building up within our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, which finally flowered in the resurrection and the ascension. So um, uh, this does not uh, th- this shows us our great need, but not it, uh, but not uh, not to describe the church's not to describe the church's future. When I think of when I think of the Church of Rome, especially here, I think of a church that glories in defeat. The the Church of Rome glories in the crucified Christ. It's the the, the crucifix with the crucified Christ on it that adorns all of their churches. Uh, The defeat of Christ. No, no, no. Protestantism has an empty cross because Christ was taken down and Christ, he we do not minimize the cross but neither do we minimize the Christ of the cross who rose again from the dead and ascended on high to keep to take captivity captive and to to direct the church of Jesus Christ, that she might take her rightful place in the world. So we see this manifested here in terms of Christ, first of all, because we see his sorrow in verse 34. Um, He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here watch and pray. Our Lord Jesus manifests this tremendous consternation, this tremendous discouragement, uh, when he thinks about the weight of sin that he must bear. But he does not draw back from it. He t- he takes a square look at it. He recognizes its awful weight. He asks his heavenly Father if he might if he might be uh, escape it in some uh, unimaginable way. But then he says to his Father, Thy will, not mine, be done. But our Lord Jesus looks at the, uh, looks at this, and He does sorrow, uh, uh, truthfully and really, looking at what He must bear. The thing that we take so lightly in our lives, the sin that we live with, we are like we are like pigs and swine. You know, uh, they are they're made fun of by. Caricature and by story, by literature. They're made fun of because they can wallow in the mire and they, they, they don't, they don't notice it. Uh, they love it. Uh, on the internet this past week, I know, I noticed a kind of an illustration of that. There was this lady with a white poodle. Had, had evidently just been cleaned. And the poodle, uh, got to, they were walking along the road and the poodle came to this muddy hole in the road. And the poodle just waded in and then started to glide along. And and there was such a contrast between the the clean white fur of the poodle or the hair of the poodle and then uh, this mire in which the poodle was in. We, too infrequently, are we bothered by this sort of thing? Uh, we, We are bothered more by calls to righteousness, calls to repentance. How dare the Lord? How dare this preacher? How dare our Christian friend? challenge us to leave the mire and the mud. Oh, it just feels so good. We want to get in and wait. And I remember myself when I was a boy, uh, we had, um, our backyard was a very low area. And in um, the gra- it had been a a, a a bit of a pit at one time where they had taken uh, ground out, you know, I guess to use other places. It was already a a lower area. They'd taken this ground out. So we had a whole bunch of uh, bare areas that would not take well to grass. Where um when it rained, it got very muddy, and so we kids just gloried in that for a while, and every rainstorm we would put our bathing suits on and we'd go out and we'd just slam around, you know we'd get all muddy and just slide and it was a lot of clay soil so you could slip it was slippery and sliding, and uh, and we made it we made a great great fun of it, but it is not so in the world of morality it is not supposed to be so <laughs> when it comes to Righteousness and sin, we're supposed to have some realistic sense of of cleanliness and filthiness. And we're supposed to want the clean and despise the filth. But that is not so in the world. So many of the comedies that we see on television and in literature, so many of these comedies are based on the the um, the filth of society, I, you know the the British are known known for their supposed to be high higher society. But if you watch British comedy, it is like it's like one. I, in fact, I, it's hard to understand how they can out of the creativity and the d- dynamic of the human spirit how they can find so many jokes on sex. It's just amazing how one after another after another illusion or a uh, twist of tongue or whatever comes out on this. But it should not be so with us. And so our Lord Jesus Christ has it downright. He, he said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch. So he beckons the disciples um, to watch. And uh, he has a great sorrow, though, over the battle that he might must fight. Because... Truth is truth and error and error is error. Righteousness and righteousness and unrighteousness or sin is unrighteousness. Cleanliness is cleanliness and filth is filth. And our Lord Jesus Christ entered in to the filthiest environment possible, the moral sin of mankind, and took all of that upon himself and paid the price for that. Now here he is in the garden anticipating that battle. He's anticipating being identified with the filth. Here is our Lord Jesus Christ, who has never sinned in his life, who has never wanted to sin in his life. His his spirit has been so pure that he has never even wanted or desired to sin. He's been tempted with power, like in the temptation, Uh, of Christ. He's been tempted, but never did his spirit delight in the idea of actual rebellion against his Heavenly Father. But here, he must take all of that, the mass, the weight, the heaviness of human sin. The human sin that has caused so much agony in the families of mankind, all the divorces, all of the abandoned children, the aborted children, the violated children. He must take all of that upon himself, and so he's praying in the garden. He sees this so clearly. We, we, we don't. We have difficulties even seeing it. He sees it, and he is determined to to deal with it. And uh, he um, he he argues that he will he'll he'll deal with it. Now, in terms of this prayer that he urged the disciples to, we see where man is totally pathetic. But yet where man is pathetic, Jesus is heroic. At the very points where the disciples fail, we see the courage of Christ, the determination of Christ, the drive of Christ. He will not abandon his post. He will not let mankind be lost forever under the eternal judgment of God. He will save a people from their sin. He will win. He will redeem the elect. And secure their eternal salvation. And so we see that he urges them to pray. Now, Jesus goes out ahead of them, then. He takes um, Peter, James, and John with him on this prayer vigil. He goes out in front of them, and uh, uh, it says he fell, in verse 35, that he fell on the ground. So our Lord Jesus was so taken up with this prayer that he did not merely bend the knee. Our Lord Jesus fell face down on the ground praying to his heavenly Father so caught up was he with he was he with the pathos of the human condition so here we have on one hand we have Jesus who is utterly alert and aware we have mankind which is literally asleep the the disciples were so insensible about their plight and so insensible about the doctrine of sin. Just like the theologians who write about these things and minimize sin and and, and minimize the work of Christ. Pelagius and Arminius and people like this. They have no true conception of what they're talking about. Jesus, on these very subjects, Jesus is prostrate on the ground, face down, arms out, petitioning, his heavenly father, regarding his going through this process. We see that in verse 37 through through 41, uh, he beckons them to prayer, but the, the disciples cannot pray. They cannot keep awake. Jesus is doing the work, but they can't even pray for the workman. Secondly, we see the repeated use of the means of grace by the disciples, and yet the means of grace are means of nothing for them because they give themselves not to it. Prayer is nothing. It avails nothing for them because of their frailty, verses 35 through 41. But at the same time, uh, we see Jesus, verse 41, 42, ready to challenge all comers. Verse 41, it says, And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? And listen to these words. He says, It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Here in these words, our Lord's determination. There's no quit in him. There's no deference to sin. There's no, there's no soft peddling it he's not going to make his peace with the world uh, <clears throat> uh he is going to he is going to take the the bull by the horns as it were literally the horns that could destroy him but he was going to take them and he he says in verse forty two rise let us be going so we see a readiness to challenge uh to challenge that which he faced and then a few verses later verse 40, 48 and forty nine I love it because we see Jesus again, uh, after they after they arrest him, he says, he answers and says to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and th- clubs to take me? I, daily I was in the temple teaching. Why did you not seize me? But the scripture must be fulfilled. We see here Jesus um, rebuking Rome and Israel. This is no humble Jesus who will... Lay down meek and mild before the, the wickedness of the world. This is the Jesus who is righteous and who will rebuke the world even in their wickedness at the last at the last moment as they arrested him. Here's a Jesus of strength, he was not who was not overcome or overwhelmed by Caesar's power. Or by the high priest today. People people talk about the state. Oh the, the state of Caesar. Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. So they will give Caesar everything he wants, whatever Caesar dictates, Caesar gets. Our churches have been closed for most of the year. Our churches have been cowed by weakness and by frailty and by fear. People will say, well, Uh, We need to be appropriate in the face of this illness. Well, we have illness with us all the time. It's like the poor. The poor you always have with you. So are you going to stop living? Are you going to stop living? Because of the condemnations of the Lord and his negative providences? Not so with Jesus here. Jesus is being arrested. And he, uh, he rebukes them. He calls them out. He describes the situation as it is. Why do they come out in the dark to arrest him? He was laboring daily in the temple, was he not? He was teaching honestly. Here we have no conspiratorial leader who hides in the shadows with his conspiracies and then sends out others at night to do his bidding. No. Here we see the brave, the honest, the open, Jesus Christ teaching in the temple. Doing nothing in the day that he would do at the night in the night, and so uh, at the same time that we see man being pathetic, we see Jesus being heroic. Verse forty-three and following, we see Judas' corruption. I'm not going to belabor that. I have I have done that some in other messages, but our psalm this morning that we sang about about going to the temple with our friends, and having them then rebel against us. It's so true here. I just can't imagine. I cannot imagine uh, Judas' tears with Jesus and his remonstrations and his signals to Jesus that he was with him. The fact that he was elected to be the treasurer of the, of the 12 disciples. It was a place of honor for sure, a place of responsibility. And yet this one... That was trusted with their treasure. They cannot trust him with their, their their Lord, their their Rabbi, their teacher, because he is the one that would betray him. I mean, he betrays him with a kiss, a sign of affection, and good words, Rabbi, Rabbi. In other words, teacher, teacher. So we see G- Judas' abject corruption in this case. And then at the end, verse 47 with John, John Mark, and then again in 51 and 52, we have just a hint here of the the courage of the church, the courage that Jesus' work would bring forth. Because when Jesus is arrested, John Mark uh, cuts off the ear of the high priest with his sword. And you notice how Jesus, Jesus and the other Gospels Uh, Jesus says, no, no, not now, (laughs) but he doesn't, he doesn't say to, to John Mark, uh, no, this is a wicked thing you've done, this is totally inappropriate, no, he just says, that's not for now, you know, so Jesus does not minimize the right that we have of self-defense, these men came out of the dark, um, they didn't identify themselves, they just, uh, they just laid their hands on the Lord, and Mark, uh, uh, Mark operated out of some innocence of heart I believe and and uh, cut off the high priest. ear Jesus in the other gospels he heals the high priest uh, the, the servant of the high priest puts his ear back on him. so that maybe he can hear the gospel so that maybe he can consider this Jesus whom he came to arrest but uh, whatever. And now, and I love in verse 50 and 51, why is that put in there? Now a certain young man followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now we would sniggle and giggle about a, a naked person running in the night. But here's the, 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 Church history indicates that this was John Mark, who did this, and he uh, he he came out to be with Jesus. But then, when he was uh, when he was accosted, uh, he was a resourceful fellow, and he thought, you know, I love my I love my dress, my gown, my jacket, whatever. But uh, my my life was more valuable, and so he left the jacket in the hands of his his uh, uh, those who would arrest him and abuse him and just took off naked into the night. Well, if this is not the story of the church in church history, then it's nothing, because there was often times when the church was abused, and the church was uh, sought after, and very often the poor church has run off without her robes also, but to live another day and to, to preach another gospel. And so uh, so with John Mark, Literally here, he runs off here on this occasion. He runs off naked. But as he, as he writes this gospel, he's not so naked anymore, is he? He's not so weak. He's not so afraid. He has not been driven to flee, but now he has been drawn to battle. And the gospel of Mark is a, a litany of the reasons why we have courage in the face of such things in this world and why we can be enthralled with the life of Christ, and with, especially with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, because John Mark turned from being a boy that fled naked into the night. He turned to being a man who was willing to write a gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ and preach and teach about this Lord that he had come to so serve and so love. So it ought to be with us. <clears throat> um, uh, I think of this passage, I began with a, an illustration of Rome, but uh, I, I really think that that's appropriate in this passage because uh, Rome um, glories in the defeat of Christ and uh, this crucifix with Christ still upon it, and Protestantism glories in the cross without Christ. Because the cross had its place, but the cross was not the end of the story. The empty cross, the empty tomb, the resurrected our Lord Jesus Christ, the ascended on high Son of Man, that is the Lord of the Church. And um, so we we should see this not as a, a description of defeat, It describes defeat, but it's not a description of defeat because this is not a defeat, but it is a a victory that is worked out and obtained by our Lord Jesus Christ. And it calls us then, it calls us to courage and uh, resolve. Um, This morning Susan showed me a... uh, a devotional from Mr. Spurgeon, morning morning and evening. And she, he was focusing on, look, look upon my affliction from Psalm 25:18. Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. And I love the way Spurgeon ended that devotional uh, because he says, uh, uh, David does not so say. He cries, Lord, as for my affliction and my pain, I will not dictate to wisdom. Lord, look at them. I will leave them to thee. I should be glad to have my pain removed, but do as thou wilt. And this reminds us of Jesus saying, uh, uh, "Thy will, but not mine, be done. But then uh, Spurgeon goes on and he says, but as for my sins, the psalmist David says, but as for my sins, Lord, I know what I want with them. I must have them forgiven. I cannot endure to lie under their curse for a moment. And that that uh, reflects the same sense as our Lord Jesus Christ. He could not turn from this course of dealing with sin. He must obtain a victory over it. And if that meant a defeat for him in the flesh, in terms of him being the son of man, then he would obtain that. Spurgeon went on to say, he says, a Christian counts sorrow lighter on the scale than sin. We say that again. A Christian counts sorrow lighter on the scale than sin. He can bear that his troubles should continue, but he cannot support the burden of his transgressions. The psalmist said, Look upon my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. The psalmist must have forgiveness. He, he wants the Lord to look upon his affliction and his sin and his pain, but he, he demands that the Lord forgive his sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot, he cannot live with them. He must have relief from them. That's the sense that the Spirit gives him. And so let us be strengthened by this passage. Uh, it's not a passage that shows uh, a uh, great defeat in the sense that defeat is the end of the story. Uh, it, it describes defeat, but then it shows us always that, that this defeat is unto the victory, and unto the witness, both of John Mark and the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might be like John Mark. I pray that we might see ourselves in this text, that we might see ourselves running, undone by the threats that come upon us. But we pray at the same time, O oh Lord, that you would raise us up and give us courage to face this world, and its taunts and its threats, its threats to take away our lives, to kill us, to take away our futures. We pray, O oh Lord, that we might see our future is with Thee, that Thou art the, the Father of a new generation of followers of Thy Son, even called Christians because they thrive in the crucifixion of Christ, even as they thrive in its resurrection. We pray thee, we thank thee, we ask thee for courage. We know that we are, are too much like the disciples who could not even pray in strength. But we pray, O Lord, that we would have thy resolve. We pray that like John Mark, we might be back for the struggle, that 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 which we ran from one moment might be our glory, our gospel in the next. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.